Welcome to Dollars and Cents, creating your fulfilled life with Nicole Romito from Private Vista. In this podcast, we draw from years of experience as well as guest specialists to help you create the life you imagine. Join us in this journey as we enlighten and empower you to align your lifestyle to help you achieve your goals with a clear picture of your future. Now, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Cents with your host, Nicole Romito. Nicole, what's going on? You know, just it's a beautiful day here in Chicago and uh, I'm excited to be here with you and with our guest today. Well, you, you stole my thunder. You have a oh, guest. Oh, sorry. No, you didn't. No, you, <laughs> you brought bad. a guest in. Yeah, I'm so excited to, uh, you know, because I know the topic, but the audience doesn't. Who did you bring in? Yeah, I'm so excited. With me here today in our studio is Corinne Smith. She works as an undergraduate admissions officer at Yale University. Um, I know. So super impressive. I think we're going to have a really robust filled conversation today. Well, I know that I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room, so I'm going to exit now. Okay. Sounds good. I'm kidding. I'm I'm still here. (laughs) Oh, you are? Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, why don't I, I think uh, I'd like to at least give a little background of Corinne professionally before we jump into our topic today. So uh, as I said, with me here today is Corinne Smith. She currently is an undergraduate admissions officer at Yale. During her time working in both the Yale and then before that Northwestern admission offices, she has read thousands of applications and has served as a voting member on both the domestic and international admissions committees. She also volunteers as an academic advisor to first and second year college students. She personally has a bachelor's in political science and sociology, as well as a master's in higher education administration and policy from Northwestern University. Corinne is currently pursuing her doctorate in diversity and equity in education through the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where she focuses on college access barriers impacting first-generation, low-income, and rural students. I don't know when she found time to do this, but she, back in April of this year, published a book alongside Anne Merrill, and it's called The College Essay Journal, A Mindful Manual for College Applications. It's a fun and exciting workbook that helps college applicants brainstorm and write their best college essays. So I have to say, Eric, I think that we all know who the smartest person in the studio is right now. So Corinne, without further ado, I've given a little background on your professional accomplishments. Before we jump in to our topic, would you please share a little bit about yourself personally and what you like to do when you're not helping kids get into college? Absolutely. Thank you all for having me today. I feel like I'm shocked by that bio. I don't know how or why I did all of those things. But my things that I enjoy personally, probably not the smartest person in the room kind of stuff. I am from the suburbs of Chicago, so I enjoy deep dish pizza more than anything. Sports, playing and watching are close second. Big fan of both documentaries, but also a lot of really bad reality TV and just, you know, (laughs) finding all the best restaurants in Chicago. So that's a little bit about me. And uh, yeah, please do not think I'm the smartest person here because I certainly do not. Well appreciate you being so humble and also that you uh, sound to be pretty well-rounded. So it's good to know 
for our audience that we're talking with a, a real and whole person who's bringing her full authentic self today. So thanks for sharing. Absolutely. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in uh, and jump into the exciting world of applying for college and then some things to consider when you're both doing it and go from there. So I know when we were talking about this, it sounds like, you know, you kind of got into this or maybe your interest was piqued when you personally were beginning to look at colleges and deciding where you were going to go. Do you want to start us off maybe with a little background of how that went for you personally? Absolutely. I mean, the short answer is that my college application process in high school was a complete disaster. Um, (laughs) The long answer is that I've now done it four times, you know. But I attended a really big, well-resourced public high school on the North Shore of Chicago. I had a wonderful high school counselor who I still have a great relationship with today. I visited her a couple months ago when the book came out. She's awesome. But even kind of with all of that going for me, I really did not get the best information about applying to college. My high school really focused on informing us about schools in Illinois, Big Ten, and Big 12 schools. A handful of the smartest students, and I don't consider myself a part of that group when I was in high school, might have considered Ivy Plus institutions. But I personally did not know much about small schools or merit aid. I had no idea what a liberal arts college was until I went to graduate school in education. And as an admissions officer, I found that that experience is actually pretty common for public high school students in the Midwest. And so for me, it was a lot like throwing darts at the wall based on the top 50 colleges, according to U.S. News which is a pretty terrible way to apply to college and doesn't capture kind of what I now work on as an admissions officer at all. And that did not end up working for me. I applied to schools in Illinois because it was close to home and Boston because I thought it was a cool city. And there was no rhyme or reason to this. I applied to schools of about 50,000 students and 3,000 students, rural, urban, suburban, liberal arts, research institutions. I had no clue what I was doing. I ended up going to a really small school just outside of Boston because it was the most selective one that I got into and I could play volleyball there. Those things did not make it a good fit either. And by October of my freshman year, I had already applied to transfer. Uh, So that's a little bit about my background. Like I said, I've done this four times personally, but it was not a great experience. It sounds like we had similar uh, journeys to where we ended up with school because I, too, applied to a lot of different schools. My criteria, not in the, I would say, probably correct order, but I wanted to go out of state, wanted to go to school in a decent sized city. And then at the time, my major was going to be international business. And again, back when I was looking at going to school a few years ago, haha, is uh, (laughs) many colleges didn't have international business as a full-fledged degree. So I agree. And I can't even imagine, um, I don't have kids, but in talking with clients who do and my friends and colleagues, it's just a whole different ball game uh, today. Uh, Even like, how do you approach it? And then how do you find the best fit? What are some tips for people who are listening, both parents and students, where they can find the right environment that is going to be the right fit for the student? I think that's a great question. And and first, you bring up a really good point that this is often a full family experience, right? 
But at the end of the day, it has to be fit for the student. And that can be really hard for the adults in the room. And so my first most important piece of advice is that when we're talking about this idea of fit and searching for schools, it has to be fit for that student. My mom and I are super similar. Please do not tell her that I said that. But she is an (laughs) absolute extrovert and needs to be around new people every single day. Whereas I like talking to new people. That's great. But I recharge alone. And for me, 6,000 or 8,000 undergrads was a lot, whereas for her, 40,000 is not enough, right? And even though we enjoy the same things, we were both uh, interested in political science, school-wise, not a great for us to kind of go by those same criteria. And so beyond that, my real like best advice is to spend time identifying schools that have a range of selectivity that are a good fit. And when we talk about fit, that really refers to academic fit, social fit, and financial fit. And all of those are equally important. And so for a student, they're really gonna think about, all right, social and academic. Social is probably more important. And that means, you know, does this school have activities I wanna engage in? Are the people there ones that I will enjoy being around? Does this community make me feel at home? And if they don't know, then those are kind of the things within themselves that they should reflect on before they even start to put together a list. Academically is also really important, but it's a bit trickier. I think you kind of just captured this, right? You said that you applied to schools with that international focus and not many had it. Well, the reality is that we know approximately 30% of students enter college completely undecided. And then depending on the school, somewhere between 50 and 80% of students will change their mind and change their major at least once. So while including general academics as a part of FIT is important, I really do not encourage students and families to think about specific majors or departments. And that's because I can't tell you how many students I've seen who start pre-med and end up pre-law or who say, I have to go to a school that has an ABET certification in environmental engineering only to graduate four years later in economics, right? Who really knows? That's a lot to ask of a 16, 17, or 18-year-old to say this is exactly what I want to study. And so my better advice in academics is to really think about the area that they might be interested in. So if they like sciences, they'll want to make sure the schools they're looking at have strong STEM departments, maybe funding for undergraduate research, opportunities for internships in labs, but they really should not put a school on or off a list because of one very specific major. Now, the financial fit part is where the family comes in. Students, for the most part, aren't focusing their search on that piece, but it ends up being probably, in my opinion, the most important part of applying, and it should be a big part of those initial discussions. One of the saddest and toughest things that I see every single year are students who apply and get into the school of their dreams, only to be told afterwards by their parents that they can't actually afford to go. And that usually happens, I know, right? And And it happens because 
In a lot of cases, the family is afraid to have that conversation up front. They let the kid apply. They don't think they're going to get in. And then when they do, they can't make it work. And I know that conversations about finances are really difficult, but it's actually a hundred times worse having to talk about it after the fact. And so I'd really think at the beginning of this process, what is a fit socially, academically, and financially, and kind of go from there. I think that's great advice. I know from um, our side, when we're talking to the parents and they're planning for how to fund the education for their children or sometimes grandchildren is just that is we'll say, you know, it's not an easy conversation, but have the conversation ahead of time for a couple of reasons. I mean, even if you have enough resources and could afford any school, do you want your child to have some skin in the game, right? And that could be towards they're going to have to work and save on their summer jobs or they'll take out loans or things like that. But even just setting the expectations. And I think, too, even talking about the cost, even if the parent is going to write the check or be able to pay the whole bill, is just understanding how much that's costing and how much the parent is investing in the child, right? So that the child will be incentivized to do their job while they're at school, which is study and uh, get their good grades and all their experiences, right? Absolutely. Um, In grad school, when I actually had to kind of start paying for this myself, I did the math and I realized that every single class that I skipped would be $300. And let me tell you, I only missed one and a half classes in my entire master's program. Wow. Um, Whereas in undergrad, I was skipping quite a bit, you know, because it wasn't my responsibility and I didn't have that skin in the game, as you said. So I think that it's really important to engage students from every financial background in that conversation early. I agree. And I, like you, for my undergrad, didn't have any skin in the game and probably would have studied a bit harder had I. But I'll tell you, once I became um, a certified financial planner and I was counseling parents on the cost of it, not a conversation goes by with my parents where I do not say thank you for paying for college. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and because now I get it. So absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I know we're talking about education uh, in general, but I'm a strong proponent in financial education. You cannot begin too soon. 100%. And, And that's a big conversation that we had when we were writing the book, right? We wanted there to be a chapter on finances. If we do a follow up, the first one we want to do is about financial literacy, because we find that that is the toughest piece with kind of high school students and beyond. Right. Absolutely. And I think, too, even sometimes for the parents, right? How do you juggle all these competing priorities? Um, You know, even if both parents are working outside the home and they have good paying jobs, they're trying to pay the bills now, hopefully save for financial independence and then education for their kids. So it's a lot of big ticket priorities they're trying to juggle. So... How do you, you talked a little bit about the merit-based. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, or would you like to opine a little on merit-based aid, needs-based, athletic scholarships, things like that? Absolutely. So what I did not understand when I was doing this whole process is that the ways that schools provide financial aid 
are vast and very different among institutions. So often when I hear families say, oh, we're just going to apply to the top 10 or the top 20, quote unquote, institutions, according to some pretty outdated rankings, there's this assumption that if they get in, they will just get money, right? Their kid has to be really smart and worthy of merit. Well, the reality is that a lot of these kind of top-ranked institutions provide solely need-based aid, which is incredible if you think about it. They're committing to 100% demonstrated need being met for so many families. But if you are in that middle or upper class group, that means that there's very little aid that's probably going to hit when it comes to being need-based. And many of those institutions don't provide merit aid at all because all of their students are worthy of merit. So how would they give it, right? Mm. Yeah. So when we talk about merit-based aid, that's another reason why it's important to have schools that are a range of selectivity on a list that a student is applying to. Schools that are fantastic institutions, but maybe a little less well-known, often give really great merit aid packages because they're trying to entice students to go there. And that's to students from all financial backgrounds, right? A family could make a lot of money, but the student could get a really great merit-based package. There are also other wonderful opportunities that students can look into, athletic scholarships, music scholarships, ROTC scholarships that really don't have anything to do with need and can be important to consider. Um, Kind of how I like to present this is I'm going to use Northwestern. It's where I attended school. I still bleed purple uh, regardless (laughs) of where I work. But if a student really falls in love with Northwestern, right, maybe they like it because it's a mid-sized private research institution with a liberal arts focus and it's near a city, right? Great reasons to love a school. Um, But if they like Northwestern, which gives very little merit aid, uh, mostly to athletes and to the music school. They do incredible work in need-based aid. If they like it there, they'll probably also really like Duke, Vanderbilt, Emory, Rice, Tufts, Wash U, Tulane, Georgia Tech, Wake Forest, DePaul, George Washington University, American University, Pepperdine, the University of Miami, and so many others, right? And the chances of a student getting in at those schools are going to differ based on selectivity. And also, a lot of the schools that I just named give fantastic merit aid packages. So if all of those pieces that a student liked about Northwestern as the initial school still hold true and they're getting money, I kind of think to myself, why wouldn't those other incredible institutions be on the list? Absolutely. I think it's so much more than, yeah, like you said, either your dream school or the legacy school, but really looking at all the different pieces of the puzzle that make up the student and how do you put them together and figure out the best fit, certainly financially, because it's more and more expensive to go to college every year. But then too, since you're investing so much money, as we talked about environmentally, how will it be a good fit? And socially, there's just so many things to to consider. What are some of the, along those lines, like what are some of the trends? Are you seeing that more people are being aware of the different way to approach this or... Is it still kind of, you know, I want to go to Northwestern, so it's Northwestern or nothing? 
I think that's a really good question. And I think the problem that I see, and obviously my perspective is a bit skewed. I've I've worked at and collaborated with some really highly selective institutions. But what we see at kind of that that selective and highly selective level is that students identify, you know, I really love this school. Maybe I'm going to apply there early. And then if I get deferred or I don't get in, I'm just going to apply to 10 or 12 other schools at that same level of selectivity, right? Okay. And they all they kind of think like like if I put all these eggs in that basket, one gets pulled out, right? Or if I just, it's like sorority recruitment for some people. They are like, if I go through the whole process and put in the top number that I can rank every single night, I'm going to get in somewhere. And that's not the reality of this process. A 5% acceptance rate doesn't mean you apply to 20 schools and you're guaranteed to get into one. And so, so many students are like, I'm going to apply to 12 of the most selective institutions in the country, and I'm going to apply to two other schools that I don't really know much about or like that much, but I'm going to have them on my list. And then at the end of the day, their options end up being pretty limited. And so it's really better to go into this and maybe say, two of those are reach schools and the rest of the list is more realistic or has a range of selectivity and options and merit aid and need-based aid and all of these other pieces, right? Right. I agree. I have to say, in, in just our short conversation, I'm I'm somewhat relieved I won't have to go through this exercise <laughs> since I don't have children. <laughs> Along those lines, one of the things I... I have noticed as a trend is on the the social side or the mental health side, I feel like kids today are just under such immense pressure from all fronts, right? Whether it's social media and their peers, um, from their parents or family to, to do better or do their best. Do you have any tips or, or things on how, you know, especially for your, when you're talking to your first and second year students, how you're counseling them or advising them on how to, how to not only survive, but hopefully thrive in, in what could be a big pressure cooker situation? Definitely. I think that that is a big issue at both high schools and colleges across the country. I don't think it's specific to any one school. And I think that that's really important to know. Um, When we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about mindfulness, which we talk about in the book, this applies whether you're 16 or 25, whether you're applying to school for the first time, third time, or never applying to school. It's just a growing kind of issue and consideration that we should have for kind of all young people and people generally at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do want to emphasize that the process of applying to college can be stressful and can kind of exacerbate some of those issues, but it is not the root cause of mental health struggles, right? Right. And so I think that when we're talking about this, it's really important for students to understand that their self-worth does not rest in what schools they apply to or what schools that they get into. And if we're talking to families on this podcast, I think it's really important for parents and family members or guardians or whoever is a part of this to reiterate that. We love you. We care about you. We support you. We know you're going to be successful regardless of where you go. There is not... 
yeah, there's not one institution that is perfect for a student. There is not one institution that is going to make someone happy and great and successful in life. Like that is the person, not the place. Right. Right. And so I also like to put this into a little bit of perspective for students and families. When I read applications, I read thousands of them every single year. And we read quickly, we do really good due diligence, we're very respectful in the process, but that doesn't decrease the amount of applications that these selective or highly selective institutions receive. And so I think it's very important, especially for mental health purposes, to go into this process knowing that if you are applying to a selective or highly selective institution, then it is a lottery, right? That student has done all that they can to be a great intellectual, a community leader, and a person. And at the end of the day, that means that they're going to end up somewhere great and they're prepared for what comes next. And in the process of applying, they might have a lottery's chance of being accepted to a REACH institution. Um, But I also have an example, if you don't mind. I would love Um, it. I love an example. (laughs) Yeah. So even if you've done absolutely everything that the school and the counselor and all the books and everything online says that a student can do, as a parent, you've been the most supportive. You've, You've gotten your student all the tutoring or help that they might need. It still is a lottery's chance. And I say that because... I'm going to use the state of Michigan, our neighbors, as an example. There are close to 1,900 high schools in the state of Michigan. And every single one of those schools has a valedictorian. And in addition to that valedictorian, they also have other incredible, amazing students. Now, in a given year, I might accept 25 to 35 students from the entire state of Michigan. And that is what it means to be a lottery, right? There's nothing that someone can do that will guarantee their acceptance, not even being a valedictorian. I, as an admissions officer and as kind of the author of the book on this subject, would not know if someone's going to be accepted, even if they gave me every piece of their statistics and their entire application until I'm sitting in that room kind of making a decision and voting on an applicant. And so it's really important to be well-rounded for you as a student, but also be happy and excited to attend any of the schools on your list. Oof, I have to say, I'm glad I'm not applying for college in this environment. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but let's, can we step back for just a second? Because I'm talking about the most highly selective processes here, right? Sure. And There are over 3,000 colleges and universities in the U.S. And the vast vast majority of them accept far more applicants than they deny. And so to get held up on kind of these name brand institutions Mm -hmm. is a real mistake. Because those 3,000 schools, most of them are going to beg for students to come and do everything in their power to support them and give them all the merit aid that they possibly can, right? When we focus on just such a small group, a fraction of a fraction of all the schools that are out there, we're doing a disservice to all the students that are applying. Yeah, that's a great point. I just made a note. I'm like, just like we like to diversify your portfolio, what I'm hearing is families should diversify their search 
and be a little more open-minded when you're looking at the schools. So I love it. That that actually does make me more excited. And, and, and my, sh- <laughs> my shoulders went down a little bit. I, I'm not as stressed now. Yeah. And, and my favorite thing is when a student comes up to me and they're like, I found this incredible institution that I've never heard of before. I, I read this book and it was in there and they have the coolest honors program. Or I went to this, this college fair and I just happened to stop by there because they had candy and the rep was so cool and I love it there. Um, there's also a lot of search platforms that students can use. Uh, one called Loper is my new favorite. They're actually kind of a day app for colleges they download and then you like swipe left or right on whether you like a school yeah so there's a lot (laughs) of ways to find out about other schools beyond just those big lists that people hear of great well I'd love to touch on I mean we could be here all day talking Um, this is (laughs) this is fascinating so thank you for sharing all your experience and wisdom of course Um, Before we wrap up, I'd love, I know you're getting your doctorate in this area and you wanted to make sure, and I did too, that we kind of talk about the shift you're seeing in admissions where acceptances are increasing for first-generation college students and perhaps those that are from lower-resourced environments or homes. Yes. And speaking of talking all day, I could go on all day about diversity and equity in education. It's clearly what I love. And I think it's it's amazing. We're seeing more students from every socioeconomic group applying to college. And we're also starting to see far more first generation to college students applying to both college generally and selective schools. I would say it's not super fair, in my opinion, to just say that schools are accepting more students from these groups without telling that whole story. Okay. Yeah, first generation to college and low-income students are still vastly underrepresented at most colleges and universities, and particularly at highly selective and selective ones. And so part of what we're seeing is that those students weren't applying to college before, and now they are, which is great, right? I'm not going to be one to sit up here and say every single person in the country should go to and will be served by a four-year institution, but I think it's really wonderful to see students exercising their ability to have that choice and to enter those pools and kind of reach for something higher. But I also think, as someone pursuing my doctorate in this area, that there's a lot more work that needs to be done on that equity piece, both when it comes to removing college access barriers, but also schools doing even better work to do outreach and recruit and admit and matriculate students from first-gen and low-income backgrounds to their institutions. Well, I we certainly just did a very high-level overview of that area. We'll have to have you back for another episode so we can do a deeper dive, because I'm with you. I'm very passionate about that topic and would love to learn more and have a more robust conversation with you. Would love uh, to. Yeah, great. So I can't believe it, but we're getting here towards the end of our time together. And uh, I think, you know, it'd be fun if we wanted to wrap up with some of the mythbusters that you could share with our listeners. 
Definitely. Do you want to ask them to me or do you want me to go through them? I'm happy to tease some up to you. Perfect. So uh, I, think that, I think this is a great segue. The one myth buster is all admission officers are old white men. So I think that's a good one to start with, <laughs> given what we just talked about. <laughs> 100%. So this is probably the true secret to college admissions that they don't tell anybody is that generally within an admissions office, and, and again, I have friends and colleagues at offices all around the country, and it still holds true. Generally, half of that office is typically young, recent graduates from that school. And when I say oh, recent grads, I mean one to five years out, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And the other half of admissions officers are typically a majority women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe 50s. And so (laughs) when students come into a session that I give, they're typically shocked by meeting me. And I'm like, throw away all the misconceptions that you had about who is reading these applications. That's great. And I I love that over half are women. And I know you meant that even if people are getting up in their 50s, it's still young, right? 100% young. (laughs) All right. The next one I want to tee up since your book is, um, you know, how to write mindful college essays. One of the other myths uh, we talked about is that schools don't actually read the essays. In my experience, they read every piece of information in every single application, and that makes for a very long winter and some really bad moods when it gets dark at 4 p.m. and the bears lose (laughs) and you have to read 12 hours of applications. I hope you have a deep dish pizza with you at least. Oh, those days, you know I'm eating pizza. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. And let's do one more. The other one that caught my eye is that school's can't or don't look up a prospective student's social media accounts. Now, I do not have time to look up every student's social media account, but there is absolutely no rule saying that I can't. And there's no rule saying that I can't search things on Google or look up their parents or anything else. So if something looks a little weird or fishy or we have questions, Absolutely. Any school can look up a student's information and social media accounts and everything public can be taken into consideration. Okay. Do you have in your experience, do you and I don't know if you're comfortable sharing this, like what percentage of applicants like you guys are looking at social media accounts? Again, it's not high. When I'm reading 2,000 applications plus per year, again, I do not have time to look up even 500 of those, right? It's, It's not that high. But most schools will also run verification checks on their admitted students. So if they're getting ready to admit someone, they might call the high school and say, hey, were they actually the president of this club? Or are these actually the grades on their transcripts? Fraud has become really prevalent, and a lot of schools are working really hard to combat that. Um, So it might be even more than just social media checks in those cases. And that would be typically random students or students where they're like, wow, that's really impressive. Let's just double check it. But that is becoming more prevalent. 
Wow. Okay. That's my fun fact that I learned for the day. So thank you. (laughs) Happy to help at any dinner parties with those facts. Perfect. All right. Well, on that note, thank you again for sharing your time, your wisdom, and your knowledge with myself and with our listeners. Before we go ahead and wrap up, I like to ask each of my guests a kind of a fun question. And that is, If money, you know, there was no constraints on time, money, anything like that, where would you most like to live and why? Oh, I love this question. I would say that I'd have to choose Iceland. Oh, okay. I went there, I think it was 2015, 2016 at this point. I went with my mom. It was a really wonderful trip. And just every day was something new. It was gorgeous. One day we hiked a volcano. The next day we were in full-on wetsuits in a glacier lake. And I I always thought if I could live here and own a home, which you can't do unless you're Icelandic, you can only rent for like 99 years, this would be the place. It's so cool. There's another fun fact for you, right? That is, yes. (laughs) Yes, You also uh, have to adopt a traditional Icelandic name, which I don't know what mine would be. Oh, I was just going to ask you that. So you beat me to the punch. All right. (laughs) Way to anticipate the follow-up question. Well, great. Well, thanks again, Corinne. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, And even though I don't have kids, I certainly learned some important tidbits that I can share with my clients. So I appreciate it. We do want to offer to our audience that the first three people to email us at podcast at myprivatevista.com reference this episode and the first three people who email us will send you a copy of Corinne's book, College Essay Journal, A Mindful Manual for College Applications. Corinne, if any of our listeners want to learn more about the book, or they're not the first three, uh, or they have questions for you or your co-author, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? Absolutely. So email us if you'd like at info at collegeessayjournal.com. We are happy to answer any questions and kind of talk more about the book. We're really excited. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right, Corinne and and Nicole, this has been fantastic. I learned a ton. One thing that I did learn is that Corinne is part of that trip to Iceland or the, the move to Iceland. I'm assuming you're going to start a pizza shop because I don't think they have deep dish like you like it. So you're <laughs> going to have to bring it to Iceland. Is that okay with you? I mean, you are assuming that I can cook, which is you a big learn. assumption over there. <laughs> well, well, I mean, come on. You, that's the only way you're going to get a good deep dish in Iceland, I think. I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. Lumal Nadi is my mail to Iceland. Who knows? Okay. All right. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll look into that as well for another fun fact for next time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Nicole, you know, I, I know that you deal with parents all the time. You deal with grandparents. If folks that are listening want to reach out to you and, and talk about not only this episode, but how this episode fits in a greater part of their picture overall, how do they get a hold of you? Yes, there's two ways they can uh, get a hold of us. They can give us a call at 312-831-4370, and Sue or Lorena will direct them to an advisor. Or you can check out our website at www.myprivatevista.com. And on our homepage, there is a Contact Us button. 
And again, that'll get you routed to an advisor. Fantastic. Corinne, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, Nicole, thank you for bringing a super smart person who knows deep dish pizza onto the show. That was my hope for the day. So that, that <laughs> got accomplished. And our last thank you always goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Dollars and Cents podcast with Nicole Romito. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Nicole comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Private Vista, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Dollars and Cents, Creating Your Fulfilled Life with Nicole Romito, sponsored by Private Vista. Visit our website at www.myprivatevista.com or give us a call at 312-831-4370. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Private Vista is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Private Vista and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Private Vista and Hightower Advisors, LLC, assume no liability for action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced. Such data and other information are subject to changes without notice. This was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.